so we left off last time, Dr. Koontz, with a, a pretty, from my end, I guess, black-pilled version of, of the future of, at the very least, the state of Illinois. And uh, we'll <laughs> maybe be returning to uh, what I can personally do to prepare for the the impending doom that, that I imagine is headed our way. Uh, on the other side, you know, by day, uh, I, I preach in a pulpit and attempt to convert people to Lutheran Christianity in the hopes of maintaining a little shop on a corner uh, where people will come and, and, and pay for spiritual counsel and, and to hear me hear me do this. And as much as and I hope the listener can understand, that's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek description of what it means to be a pastor in uh, American evangelical America. But the, the sale, salesmanship slash social club slash spirituality shop, um, golly, uh, you know, that really is what it is uh, for most people. And uh, we're now 30, 40 years into the church growth movement's attempt to make everyone better at this at the same time so that all our churches can be mega churches. And uh, the impact that that's had uh, across denominations has not been one which has, has made all congregations grow. Uh, yeah. But there are some that do uh, for a variety of reasons. It often seems that the neighborhood demographics and growth trajectory of the neighborhood has a lot to do uh, with what's going on. But I'm pretty confident that uh, if you put up a shop that, say, practices Lutheranism and most of the people in your neighborhood are, have no idea what that means, you're, you're probably not going to be um, really winning them over anytime soon with your, your weird and eccentric uh, version of Christianity. So... Uh, so I'm looking forward to this this hour here talking about why some churches are growing, why other churches are not growing, uh, how we as those who are both committed to truth and virtue in the public square uh, also then can see this as a commitment to truth and virtue in the local congregation uh, yeah. and, and uh, kind of seeing that as not just the public square politically, but uh, the real place of life uh, that um, belongs with the family alongside the family. So, uh, yeah, I think it's enough for you to start on, probably. Yeah, we've got what we're discussing today is an aggregation of a variety of recent surveys and reports, largely running off the 2020 census, but also including data from 2022 about American religious belief, attendance, and other, let's say, metrics of whether someone is religious or what is now called in the West secular. And that aggregation, which in this case, you can find different different versions of this, but the Hill put this out a couple of weeks back. The aggregation looks at Gallup polls. It looks at reporting by the US religion census, which is, of course, a that's not the government. Um, our government doesn't ask about religious affiliation. It never has. But it is a, a nonprofit group surveying Americans about where they belong or what they belong to. And there are a couple of things to know about religious data before we give you any specific figures today. One is that generally people over-report belonging. That is, there's going to be a mismatch pretty much anywhere between people who report being Catholic and the Catholic Church's records of any such number of people or percentage of the general population. There's going to be a mismatch between people in Alabama who say they're Baptist 
and the reported membership of, you know, Southern Baptist congregations in the state of Alabama. So that's important to know is that even today, and we'll we'll talk about why I said even, but even today, people over-report, according to religious organizations themselves, whether they belong to religious organizations. So that's just kind of an interesting insight to know about human beings, uh, especially, especially Americans, is that they seem to want to appear more religious than churches themselves are aware that that many people are religious or belong to them or whatever the case may be. So that's that's one thing to know. And the other is this, that a lot of people, when they answer religious surveys, are wildly mismatched with what they report belonging to. And any pastor can tell you that there is a mismatch to one degree or another between what his church teaches, what he teaches, and what his congregants actually believe. And that mismatch is going to be wider or narrower, of course, depending on the church, depending on the denomination. It's going to be wider or narrower depending on the pastor's pastoral practice. It's going to be wider or narrower. Maybe the church, like, I don't know, the United United Methodist Church or United Church of Christ consciously fosters a wide array of theological beliefs while usually fostering a fairly narrow band of political beliefs that apparently accompany those theological stances. So uh, these things are going to vary, but there's going to be a, there's going to be a mismatch, right? So that's why you're going to find, for example, just to start out, that as you go down the ages through the age, let's say groups, generations, that fewer and fewer Americans report believing in God. Just a very, very generic statement. No definition of God, nothing like that. No pronouns assigned. But, you know, Gen Z is somewhere near 35 to 40% atheist, according to one survey, whereas the oldest demographic still alive in any numbers in the United States, which would be called sociologically the silent generation, the, the parents of the boomers are, you know, 90 plus percent believe in God. So whatever believe in God means, that number is way down from here. And the reason I start with that number is because it's it's basically those kinds of numbers that I care most about. We're also going to talk about non-denom churches, which are pretty important in these surveys. But it's a number I care most about because I find that most American Christians seem still to be more concerned about each other's existence than they are about their single largest competitor, especially the lower the demographic goes, which is not believing anything. <laughs> you know, or I mean, you can present atheism or even, you know, various hardnesses of agnosticism in different ways. But that's generally what Christian children turn into when they don't remain Christians their whole lives. They don't generally turn into, you know, they they used to be Catholic and now they're Baptist, or they used to be Presbyterian and now they're Pentecostal. It's not that that doesn't happen. It's just far more likely that the kid that got confirmed and never came back to your church doesn't go to any church and doesn't particularly care about God at all at this point. Yeah, the... 
the intramural debates about why our tradition, our institutions, our version of Christianity um, is the right one. While I would say not entirely irrelevant to everything that there ever was, yeah, are kind of irrelevant to just about everything else that's going on right now. Uh, <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that I, I'm, I'm sitting here saying I think we should commune Baptists at the Lutheran altars, um, but I am saying that whoever comes into my door doesn't, give, doesn't care about that question right. at all, not even a bit. Uh, and maybe they'll be upset. Maybe they won't. It does. They might not even care. I mean, and then uh, the 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 real, like you said, competitor that we've got is. Uh, it's interesting. I don't believe in God. I, I I would be surprised if it's all rank atheism. I bet you somewhere inside of I don't believe in God is yeah I believe in gods, or I believe in spirituality but not religion. Um, yeah, that that, that, yeah. that language is there because what I see from a lot of people is just sort of like the the hodgepodge Hindu Buddhist, but not really. I just kind of I I love nature and I want to be a good person and um, you know I'm, I don't want to get into any of these doctrinaire conversations about what God really might be and all this. Um, but the point still being is that they are not going to practice any kind of public religion. Uh, that that, right. that is the religion is a privatized spirituality, and uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> they hear us arguing about uh, uh, the Gainas Myostaticum, and and they're 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 done. I mean, they don't they don't. It, they don't yeah, they don't I mean, care. it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah. it's it, it's a debate about you know a hockey team you don't follow and you don't even understand how hockey works. Right. You know. Yeah. Good analogy. And I, I, yeah, I think I think you're spot on there. I, I don't think that I don't believe in God means uh, I don't believe in anything, or I don't believe in spiritual non-material realities or whatever. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I've told this anecdote on the podcast. I know I've told it to various people. Is that in teaching religion, world religion, to public school? university students, when given a variety of categories to put themselves in, I would always put atheist first. And a ton of them would jump into that, including, you know, the valedictorian of Roman Catholic high school in Philadelphia, which is an all boys school, you know, and it's called Roman Catholic. <laughs> you know, that's the name. And so they would all jump in there. And then I'd give them various denominational belongings. I did this in a thing on religions of India in order to explain to them how religion matched up with political affiliation really reliably in India, whereas <laughs> it only does somewhat reliably usually in a Western country. You know, so I give them uh, Catholic and and some that would usually be the biggest one. And you know, you you lived outside Philadelphia. That's kind of your that's kind of your Christian default outside Philadelphia is Roman Catholic. Yeah. And then I give them Baptist and you know I'd probably just be a couple black kids that would be that would be self-consciously Baptist. And then I'd give a, a Methodist and it'd be like one kid. Give him Lutheran. It's like me and some ELCA kid that doesn't go to church, you know, or whatever. When I would give them, I'd said spiritual but not religious, which originated as a sociological term. It wasn't a term that people used for themselves. It was a term scholars used to capture what are people doing in the West when they're not in a church. SBNR. So I explained this. That's the first time I introduced the concept. Later on, I did, there'd be a whole lecture on that, but first time they'd heard it. The atheist category would just empty out. 
there'd be like two kids left, probably huh. both like, you know, computer science, like Ayn Rand devotees or something, two kids left. There's like, now there's like 25 kids in a 60 kid class in SBNR because variants of agnosticism, let's say on a, the level of, well, what do I know? But especially variants of, you know, sort of permutations of westernized versions of Eastern religions and certain forms of mystical belief and especially among the girls, mystical practice, that would cause SBNR to just fill right up. And it was always, didn't matter the class. I mean, I, I probably did that exercise like eight times. That would always be the biggest group. Once I explained that it existed, but nobody would ever like raise his hand. Sometimes I would wait. I have like nine things on the board and like some of them nobody's in. So I'd say anybody in here of the, in the church of God in Christ, you know, that's a black Pentecostal denomination. Nope. Nobody, you know, we got one Muslim, whatever. Then I put SBNR up. Now everybody's in there practically. Right. So when you think about it that way, yeah, I don't believe in God doesn't mean, you know, I, I don't believe anything. It probably, Richard Dawkins it probably, didn't win, right? Richard Dawkins, no, Richard win. Dawkins did not win because he's, <laughs> he's trying to counteract human nature is I don't believe in God probably simply means I don't believe in what I understand the Christian God to be. Yeah. Right. In a Western country, that's what that means. I don't believe in who I understand the Christian God to be, or I don't know, or I don't care about him. It doesn't mean I don't believe anything. I don't do anything. I don't go anywhere. It is pretty disorganized. That is something else to realize because the percentage of people believing in God in the general population, which is still upwards of 80%. I mean, America is still a great deal more religious than practically anywhere in California. Or, I'm sorry, anywhere in Europe. The reason I brought up California, yeah, not America. The reason I brought up California is because in my mind, as I was saying practically anywhere in, and then I said California, was a map of Europe measured by religious affiliation. And then they assigned these like index numbers to each country. And then each country is shaded. The only place, the only, the only two places in Europe that are as religious as California are Poland and Greece. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Everywhere else in Europe is less religious than our least religious places. I mean, really only like if if you wanted to say, here's a state in the United States that is as irreligious as practically anywhere in Europe, you'd have to just like cut Maine off and attach it to, I don't know, the British Isles or something. But the rest of us are way too religious, including Californians. Right. But that this Appeared. does not mean organized. This does not this mean does not church mean attending. Organized. This certainly does not mean no. uh, attached to a denomination like I'm attached to my toothpaste. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Because the percentage of people reporting belief in God, spiritual practice, whatever other indices that surveyors would use you know, to say, what do you do? What do you believe? What do you care about? Is roughly 30 percentage points higher in the United States across the nation than the number of people that report belonging to a church, which is for the first time since it's been surveyed, and I'm going to make that distinction for a reason, for the first time since it's been surveyed is under 50% as of 2020. So there's going to be a wide gap, even if the person says, I believe in God, 
there's going to be a wide gap with church belonging. And then obviously also there's a gap between church belonging and church, let's say following or church adherence or certainly church attendance. And that gap is something that, you know, if you're not aware of it, you're like, why is this occurring or why is this happening in my church or whatever? You know, so take an example of a church we talked about several weeks back now, the Roman Catholic Church. You know, there's that, you know, we got this many Roman Catholics in the United States, and then we've got this many former Roman Catholics, and that would be its own giant denomination. Is that even of the people that are there that are at mass on any given Sunday, there's such a gap between daily communicants and weekly communicants, but especially between weekly communicants and people who go to mass every so often in what they think, what they do, what they practice, how they live. And none of that particularly has to do with how the church is funded or who's giving the most or where the money is coming from, partly right. because Catholic charities make so much money from the government. So those, all of those differences, those you know, sliding scales of things, do I care about this? Do I not? Am I pro-life? Am I not? Do I support the Catholic church's position on contraception? Do I not? do I not would be like 98% of Catholics, right? Those sliding scales, those are the things to know about, not that, you know, whatever, um, ostensibly Pope Francis is, you know, the vicar of Christ or something like practically that doesn't matter. At the, I mean, it does for the New York times, certainly, but practically it doesn't matter if you are a Catholic or you're a Catholic priest or something, because that doesn't explain why the realities in front of your eyes are what they are. And it's it, it's those it's those different gaps of which like sociologists are well aware. But I find that religious people themselves sometimes often they're not even aware of because a lot of people are going off their personal experience. So I've presented some of these stats, presented them in the South. They said, "What's the largest denomination in the United States of America?" Plenty of people said the Southern Baptist Convention. I know why they said that, but it's like not even close. <laughs> it's not even close. And if non-denom churches got to be a denom, right? If they if they said we're non-denom, which is a thing, so we're a new denomination, overnight they'd be the largest Protestant denomination in America, second largest overall. Easily. So Southern Baptist is even close, but most people are going off what's immediately in front of them. And so they live in Wisconsin or something, so they know the difference between the Wisconsin Synod and the Missouri Synod. Both denominations are declining or they live in the South. So they know about Baptists and they're angry about Baptists, whatever the case may be, all religious forms of belonging are going down. The one exception to that being the existence of non-denom churches, but they're not counteracting the general decline. Yeah. Right. 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 So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is ex exactly where you're going, but it has been my observation that that, that movement, which I tend to think of as the church growth movement, but it is also kind of post-evangelicalism. Um, it is yeah. an attempt to retain a somewhat Bible-believing theology um, as a movement against liberalism, but also with a highly, you know, mom and apple pie political spectrum to it. Um, you can yeah. mention all the Israel stuff. Um but it's not always there. It's definitely got a Pentecostal lean. I mean, there's just so many edges to what makes non-denom what it is. Yeah. But what they have been very good at is enticing the, should I say, spiritually disenfranchised churchgoers of all the other places 
into kind of melting pot together with a general, but we're going to try harder one more time. Right. And so they've, uh, you know, while we've seen these congregations grow over 30, 40 years, often around a charismatic personality, uh, they have been growing with the uh, the decay of any number of other congregations that prior to their existence had existed on some sort of sustainable level yep. that now are no yep. longer sustainable. Right. I mean, one way to look at Nadanam, and I want to talk about the charismaticism thing too, but one way to look at them is that the same phenomenon that occurs in you know Americans' sense of where they get the stuff of everyday life from changes from mom and pop grocery to consolidated regional chain in my town grocery to Walmart or to Target or right. to Costco right. shifts from, you know, your average American congregation is like 50 people on a Sunday, maybe 70 people on a Sunday. We have a full-time pastor who probably has a large degree of education. So now we're going to shift to certainly after the second world war, the churches are going to get bigger there was a time when having multiple services was very unusual. So we shift to that. That's the 80s. That's the 90s. Church growth is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But non-denom as the reality that it is today is scales larger than that. I mean, it's just blowing up a lot of metrics that we used to have because of the scale of something like a Bethel right, um, in Redding, California. And the reason I bring up Bethel is because its particular theology is not, you know, 1980s, we have 500 people in worship somewhere in Virginia, sort of, you know, Baptist plus augmented Baptist, which is what a lot of evangelicalism was or is. It's post-evangelical is a good word for it because theologically it's not even committed necessarily to the same things. It's more open, for instance, to women's ordination because all charismatics are more open because of their understanding of how the spirit of God works to the ordination of women in some way. It's more open to, you know, non or anti-cessationism, you know, that, that the charismatic gifts are still available to people today. They're just not, you know, regulative the way an assemblies of God church might say. So that permutation or that growth of charismaticism matters a great deal if you look, most people didn't really pay attention to this, and this is now all being shifted under, for, certainly for the media's purposes, under the rubric of Christian nationalism. It's not necessarily, but if you look at the different, you know, just look at, go find a, a roster or a lineup of religious advisors to the second Bush administration and compare that to the particularly, obviously, the Christian religious advisors to the Trump administration. In about a 20-year time span, 15, 20 years, we shifted from kind of solidly evangelical family values forged in the 1980s Christian-style conservatives, a style that George W. Bush even adopted, although he's a member of the United Methodist Church and grew up as an Episcopalian. Those are both firmly mainline denominations, which we should probably also talk about. But he's from, although sort of unusually conservative versions of both the Episcopal Church, because Texas, and the United Methodist Church, he's still a mainliner. But he sort of pretends to be, you know, 
something that at least culturally is very familiar and comforting to a Southern Baptist voter. Go to the Trump administration. Trump doesn't really go to church anywhere particularly ever in his life. The connection to you know the Marble Collegiate Church with Norman Vincent Peale is really tenuous. The average Trump voter, we've said before, probably doesn't really go to church that much. But Trump's advisors are both much more Pentecostal slash non-denom slash charismatic. They're also making claims <laughs> from inside everything from QAnon to how they talk about Trump that are claims that if you're classic Protestant evangelical would never make like he is inaugurated in the last days. He might be a Messiah of some kind. Uh, God is blessing us through him. You have to vote for him. I mean, they're, they're making claims about Trump that historically evangelicals have only made it about Israel. Now, right. Yeah. Let, yeah. Like I remember vividly just like two weeks ago watching this happen to, to Raphael Warnock in his church. This is the crazy thing to me. Is that so? You got on the one side this kind of uh, uh, adaptation of a, I don't know that it was non denom, but that's the best way to describe it, but this yeah. hyper prophetic approach to the uh, the savior figure in church, and then, yeah. but he's, he's a living right. figure. And then right. on the complete other side of the aisle, the same thing happening. Now, granted, it's, it's a black church, but like, what's the difference? I mean, yeah, theologically. Yeah, theologically. And I, and I think that this matters because these things are run deeper. They have deeper roots and they generally run deeper in people's lives than sheer political vagaries is that theologically, these things are generally identical, meaning that our politics are now the site of messianic religious claims. So <laughs> I hate to keep bringing this up, but the last time we did this so blatantly, it was during the Civil War. <laughs> hey, we just talked about that, didn't we? Now? Right, I know, I know, I know. I mean, go just go look at some of the imagery surrounding Lincoln even before his death. And you will see something like the same temperature that you find in religious claims about American politics. And I really don't think that would be true. It it wouldn't be true on the right. Because the religious right, whose history we should discuss at some point as its own political movement, the religious right of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s did not make claims like that about individual figures. Ronald Reagan was not messianic in the same way that Donald Trump was for many of his followers. But ironically, or maybe utterly explicably, the folks who were voting for some kind of theological conviction in 1984 probably went to church a lot more often and and certainly wore different clothes when they did go to church than somebody voting in 2020 for Trump. So you have you have big changes in the American populace in their ways of belonging or not belonging to church and those cause changes in political discourse that are really readily observable. Now, there's something that I mentioned with George W. Bush that maybe we can discuss a little bit just with the caveat that we're we're not talking about ourselves because I don't think that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is a mainline church. And I don't think it ever – I think it was aspirationally maybe for about 10 years in the 1960s and early 70s, but it never really has been by virtue of its theological convictions. And it's, and it's not now. It's not getting more mainstream. But 
the decline of the main line is something that the Hill article, this aggregate article of different religious surveys and data mentions, you know, contrasts with the growth of non-denoms is the general eclipse of the mainline denominations. So maybe that's something I don't know what your thoughts are on it, Jonathan. I it's it's been so long. It's like somebody that's been on life support for 20 years and dies. It's like, oh wow. I mean, you know, sorry to hear of its passing, but not shocked in the least. You know, so I, I think of like, for example, I, I drive by an Episcopal church uh, in in my city every so often. Can't avoid it, and uh, it's a little tiny one. There's more, but the, it's it looks like it's financially healthy. There's a rainbow flag it flying prob- outside. Yeah, and it probably is a yeah. rainbow flag flying outside, and they got uh, they'll do a Christmas tree lot, and uh, there's always a couple cars there. Uh, and you know, more and more, I just think of that as an NGO, honestly. Like, like that's good. Yeah, that's, that's no, really that's what they've become. They're financial. They're not the, the, L, the LCMS issue is like, we're like, oh, we don't have people in our pews. That means we're going to close the mainland denominations. They're like, we don't have people in our pews. Good. Now we can do more stuff politically. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's no, I think I think that's extremely helpful because financially, because of legacy investment, they are generally pretty healthy, even on a congregational level. It's crazy. Just as far it's as true. the 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 business existence and sustenance of the congregation is that because of legacy investment from decades and decades and decades ago, they are fairly financially healthy. This is not the case for churches, evangelical churches, Catholic churches, and for sociological purposes, the Missouri Synod is an evangelical church. Okay. I know we're different. I know we're different. Don't worry. But sociologically, uh, we're an evangelical church. They're going to come out with pitchforks after you. That's you fine. Know, for this one. I yeah. know. They're going to, yeah, I mean, there's so much audio from this show that could be isolated and just used to destroy my life. It's fine. I understand. I think it's really insightful to say that we are sociologically evangelical. That's really worth pondering. Well, I mean, it, it's sort of like we serve the same purpose, particularly in the Midwest and the Great Plains states, that the Southern Baptist Convention serves in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are a sort of populational default religion, particularly for areas of heavy heavy 19th century immigration, to which the only analogy and to some degree the way that we behave is the Catholic Church in the same areas. So if you are in a mid-sized city in Ohio, I know you have fairly substantial Catholic parishes. You probably have a couple LCMS churches. You, you know, you might have a couple other things. Maybe you have a Baptist for people that moved up from Kentucky for jobs or something. But I know where to find you and anywhere else that you exist, you exist somewhat anomalously like a Southern Baptist can, you know, church would be in rural Vermont, right? So that's, you know, that's what it is. And that sociologically, however, if we belong somewhat in the way that Catholics do, sociologically, we certainly vote the way evangelicals do. We actually vote more loyally conservatively than a lot of evangelicals do because evangelicals are not all that electorally reliable in some places. And some people that get classified sociologically as evangelicals, especially black Protestants, vote very left-wing, in very left-wing fashion. So that makes LCMS people more reliably conservative in their voting patterns than almost anybody else. We also don't have the mismatch that a Catholic church might between its priest and a lot of its parishioners between our clergy and our parishioners. Our clergy and our parishioners are, are pretty much equally conservative. 
Politically. So politically. So sociologically, we resemble evangelicals more than anyone else, except for the way that we belong, where an LCMS person is a lot more likely than a Baptist or a Methodist or certainly not a non-person to try to look for something of his own denomination that is very familiar or something almost as familiar like a Wisconsin's in a church or something. So in that way, maybe we behave a little bit more like Catholics, but sociologically, we're, we're generally, for all intents and purposes, we're an evangelical church. Does that have to do with us being a congregationalist structure? It Certainly in the American religious landscape, it does for this reason. The mainline denominations, and let me just explain the term real briefly, it, it comes from, I mean, this is arcane, and it was probably like designed as sort of like a like a trap just for me because it involves religious history and Pennsylvania history and everything is after the main line of public works in Pennsylvania, which leads out of Philadelphia West and was supposed to go to Pittsburgh. And that's its own thing. Along that train line were certain denominations that you could pretty much reliably find in the towns along that line, like Radnor and Haverford and Bryn Mawr and stuff like that, huh. Ardmore. And in those places, so you would find an Episcopal church, you'd find a Presbyterian church, you'd find a Baptist church, you'd find a Methodist church, you'd find a Congregationalist church, a Lutheran church, and Disciples of Christ, so some sort of Campbellite church. The things that are called the Seven Sisters after, that's a term mainly used for sort of your hoity-toity women's colleges in the Northeast, many of which are no longer women's colleges none of which are technically women's colleges because they all admit trans men. <laughs> but anyway, they're called the Seven Sisters. The denominations are the Episcopal Church, United Methodist Church, American Baptist Church, Presbyterian Church USA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, would have been Lutheran Church in America in the Northeast at the time. Disciples of Christ is going to be your Campbellite version of this. And I know I'm forgetting one one of the seven sisters. So I got the denominational groups right, but not the specific denominations. Seven of them, right? Those are your main lines. So that means that they're sort of like the the anchor, the the basic fact of American religious life. This ignores the fact that Catholics have been the largest denomination since late 19th, early 20th century. Okay. But they're not in the mainstream of American power. Is So that's how this is true. People that go to these churches are not only in aggregate more than Roman Catholics historically, if you take them together, and they thought of themselves together, but also they are in aggregate and disproportionately holders of power. Okay. That's mainline Protestantism. This peaks somewhere in the late 50s and early 1960s as far as numbers, power, influence on public life. Maybe your last person who represents influence similar to this, you could make it debatable. You could say it's either Reinhold Niebuhr, <laughs> or you could say it's Martin Luther King Jr., who's trained at mainline. He's a he's a black Protestant, so that's its own world, but he's trained at mainline American Baptist institutions in upstate and then downstate New York. Okay. So MLK Jr. is is a, is a good, theologically, he's a very good representative of mainline Protestantism. Also in its political engagements, it's general left-wing orientation and public life and, and so on. Their membership pretty much 
all those groups is going to peak in the 60s. And it's going to not just plateau, but decline fairly precipitously thereafter. Because of that, other things happen. So you get reshuffle with non-denoms. But my sense is that mainline Protestants simply underwent earlier for reasons that are explicable and, and will have to do with my, you know, this is why the LCMS is not a mainline denomination. For reasons that are not unique to them, actually, they declined earlier and faster than others. But the same thing, it's I, I don't think that, you know, a Catholic kid goes through CCD, gets confirmed by the bishop, and then goes off and does whatever he wants with his life because he's just been longing to be, you know, a congregant in a United Church of Christ congregation. A congregational, well, that was the other one I forgot. So the Congregational Church becomes the UCC in the 1950s. That's the one I forgot earlier. So the Catholic kid <laughs> just doesn't go and doesn't care, just like everybody else. Just like the kid whose grandpa was a UCC pastor and the kid who was confirmed in a Missouri Synod church. Nobody goes, nobody cares about that stuff. Quote, I don't believe in God is, we're saying that shorthand for, I don't go, I don't care. Or I might have gone once, but I don't believe all that stuff and whatever. Okay. So that just happens to them earlier. The reason the LCMS is not mainline is because the LCMS begins to centralize like every other American denomination after the Second World War, you get tons of bureaucracy, tons of staff, tons of money, tons of people with the baby boom. But the LCMS has this fight over the Bible, battle for the Bible. That was Harold Linzel's term for what we were doing along with the Southern Baptists. And the LCMS goes for a theological option that is the opposite of every mainline denomination, which is we stick with a traditional Protestant affirmation of inerrancy without losing significant numbers, okay? Really unusual, okay? Like the Southern Baptists, we get a fairly small fraction that just leaves. They're eventually going to form part of the ELCA in the 1980s. Southern Baptists get the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which you probably wouldn't even know about unless you lived in like suburban Atlanta, right? Just doesn't matter, right? So because that happens... We don't actually join the main line. I mean, I think we were aspirationally main line. Mainline churches are pretty much all colonial origin churches in their history. We wanted to be part of that, part of that power, part of that prestige. We couldn't get there theologically, so we never got there sociologically. We ended up sociologically looking more like the Southern Baptists or voting real in a way, reliably Republican, similar really only to Mormons. So we just ended up in a different place because theologically, we didn't go to that place. And we didn't even use the centralized authorities to accomplish that, that mainline denominations use to change themselves. So we were doing a standard mainline thing, like changing our seminary faculties to make them very liberal. And a lot of people think that seminary faculties matter like utterly. They do matter. They just don't matter utterly because in an American church, whoever controls money and voting matters more. And what was seized both in the Missouri Synod as well as in the Southern Baptist Convention were the voting and fundraising processes. And that eventually determined who taught the pastors and all the other stuff that comes after that. What happens in a mainline denomination is that those 
seizures of power never go back in the other direction. And so the mainline denomination then becomes definitively and truly liberal, and then in political terms, leftist, and then doesn't come back from that. Not as a place that's able to inspire enough conviction to draw worshipers with any consistency over a generation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, right, again, exactly. As, as an NGO, um, somehow managing to have their vision of the world be what's in fact taking place. Uh, the, the inspiration of individual believers in the resurrection of Jesus is just not their agenda anymore. It was it ever. Yeah, you have to think that at some point it, it was. So to me, yeah, the, I, yeah. the question is, is like, it goes really back to the start of the hour. Um, like, what is going on with this? doesn't go, doesn't care, zero conviction policy of Americans. Like, yeah. th that the whole thing is somewhat hobbyist, and yet it's, it's it not, is, yeah. because it, when I, when I, I, I'm thinking specifically of people that I have met through jiu-jitsu, and, you know, they're, they really, they take their worship of their own body nutritionally, very seriously uh they consider their need for breathing exercises and or stretching and or um you know trying to to live the best wellness life i mean they 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 are i, I would give for a little bit of that energy in my in my parish with regard to bible reading and, and psalm prayer um you know because they are <laughs> yeah. they're they are devotees to their religion it's just their religion it, it isn't shared, but but at the same time, they are very willing to evangelize you. They want to tell you all about what they're doing. Yeah, they want right. You join right. what they're doing. They want you to That's affirm right. what they're doing. The thing is, why why is Christianity lost <laughs> lost the spirit on this thing? Um, and well, that, that's a risky yeah. question. Well, I I think it has something to do with what we mentioned earlier about people being unaware of anything that is not utterly and obviously familiar to them. So they're familiar with, you know, Catholic explaining, this is why I'm not Protestant or, or this is why I'm Catholic or evangelical explaining his testimony. And then, and then asking, you know, Lutheran person, how do you know, you know, when did you get saved or whatever? Like they're familiar They're They can do fairly simply, fairly naturally, fairly clearly what they were trained to do. I don't think that human systems, also systems of instruction and indoctrination, particularly emotional indoctrination, like this is, you have to care a lot about this thing. You know, this is who we are. Those kinds of systems, whether you're talking about jujitsu or sports fandom or religion, you know, different parts of a person, his mind, his heart, his emotions are indoctrinated. I, I don't think that systems actually fail at what they're set up to do. I think they fail at what we expect them to do. So if you find that American Christians are generally unable to communicate what they believe and why it matters to other people, it's probably not because we are actually teaching them how to do that and they just have absolutely no idea how to do that. It's probably because we're not actually teaching them how to do that. Right. Because... Yeah, what you describe with jujitsu is kind of standard culture in the front range of Colorado. You know, people are healthy and they want to tell you why they're healthy and what they eat and what they buy. And I'm like, I literally don't care. Like, this is <laughs> so you're a boring person. You know, I am not that interested in your body fat percentage or where you go hiking 
and what you take to do it and how I need to do that too. Like you're boring. Like, why don't we talk about something interesting? But to them, that is interesting, right? So I'm kind of like a, I'm like spiritual, but not religious in this regard. Like for me, exercise is a hobby. It's not my life, <laughs> you know? So they're trying to convince me to go to church more often, you know, basically. Is that American Christians, I think one of the difficulties that they have and one thing that we're failing to teach them or failing to do because we're actually not teaching them how to do this is for them to realize how little they matter. The reason that they are more comfortable with intramural disputes or that they have no concept about how to communicate these things is because they're still thinking of themselves as obvious and obviously important. But you'd have to what you'd have to imagine is okay. There's a there's a time in American history when there are no convenience stores. So there's a time when nobody has an opinion about this convenience store, or that convenience store, or this guy really likes Seven Eleven or something. There's a time when there just isn't. It's not there. People don't live that way. They don't need that. They don't care. And that American Christians have to start to think of themselves as like explaining why they exist or what they're for as if they were a brand new form of existence. Like, oh, I I need to conveniently get this, that, and the other thing. Oh, it's all in one store? Amazing. I've never seen that before. They have to start thinking of themselves that way in a spiritual sense rather than thinking of themselves as obvious or natural or let me tell you about this thing that happened like four centuries ago or whatever because it just has no pertinence to the things about the lives of people who are in a sociological sense, N-O-N-E-S's, nuns, that would have any contact point, right? So if this person who is really into exercise and wants to tell me what he eats and why I need to do it too, or I should do BJJ, or I should, you know, do whatever, I need to go, I need to go snowboarding. If he wants to evangelize me, he needs to find something that I actually care about whether it's something everyone could be expected to care about or whatever, you know, and then tell me how what he's trying to get me to do relates to that thing. Whereas, I mean, certainly coming in, I, I came into Christianity through mainline Christianity of all things. And then from there into the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I can tell you that it was just never, I had to frame those terms for myself because Christians were not doing that. Right. Now, so, non, what were the non, terms? What were the terms you framed? Though that was the terms I framed. Like, so one one term I framed would be life. It, the existence of life is pretty amazing. Not sort of like an intelligent design thing, but just the fact that you know there is any beauty in the world is pretty amazing. Why is that? Or there were terms that were addressed by traditional vocabulary, like forgiveness, but that was not real high up on the list for me. And that's probably my own problem. I'm just saying in order to communicate to somebody, it's generally helpful if you don't require him to learn a whole new language before you can have a conversation. And the okay. Lutherans are just done, man. We're done. We just, we're... <laughs> I'm just trying to make that not true. Uh. <laughs> but 
those terms that are familiar to people, you know, whatever, your children, your health, the fact that your dad died, whatever, these experiences common to mankind, anytime, any place, if you are requiring him to kind of abstract those and then put them in your vocabulary, or it's, or giving an example, it's not the Lutherans, you know, so I'm kind of a confused Episcopalian, confirmed, but confused. And I, you know, I'm asking uh, this guy that just became Roman Catholic, why'd you become Catholic? You know, what, uh, why would you become Catholic? You know, cause I'm thinking, I don't know, are Catholics right? I, I have no idea. No one, no one's explaining anything. What about the Catholics? He's talking about the Pope. I'm like, I don't know. The what is I don't I don't know. I mean, I do I care? Like, who's the who's the Pope? How is, he's like, this is the one true church, you know. Um, our church has authority. It's like that's <laughs> that might be true. It's probably at that point I've read enough of the Bible, it's like it's probably not, you know. <laughs> but even if it's true, like I I'm trying to explain to people, you know, why I think that, you know, that, that sin is a problem. You tell me about the Pope, you know, it's not that no Catholic had an answer to my question, but this kind of average, but well-informed, intelligent Catholic didn't, you know, I mean, he wasn't bringing anybody to mass. Frustration I would have is that I would bring people to the Episcopal church and then, uh, they would just be told they didn't need to believe any of this anyway, like in the sermon, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that was the problem I had, but the Catholic guy can't tell me, you know, he can't tell me it, these things about why Christianity rather than nothing else, not he's, he's trying to explain to me why is Catholicism the best form of Christianity? Those are not the questions that a person who has no investment in any of this is asking, right? He's not asking, do I stop at seven 11 or do I stop at Sheets or Wawa, right? He's asking, do I need to stop, right? Do I have to stop the car? Do I need a snack? Do I need gas? Do I need to stop, right? That's the more basic question. And I think that one of the reasons that non-denom churches have been more successful in answering some of those questions, there's a big consolidation effect. That's totally true. I also have met plenty of people. Some of them have churned out of a non-denom church into a Lutheran church, of which I was a pastor, who came into Christianity through non-denom. And the reason they did was because it was comprehensible. That is, some of it was stupid. They recognized that. That's why they were churning out. Some of it was very superficial and not really suitable like after the first year that you're a Christian. That's why they were kind of churning out of this stuff. There's a lot of churn, both in and out of non-denominational Christianity. But the reason that the churn was in was because they could understand what was being said and it made sense. And it was presenting certain basic Christian truths in a way that was comprehensible. There was something similar to this from a somewhat similar religious environment that I used to see more churches advertising, which is the Alpha Course. Uh -huh. yeah. that, that, that came out of the Church of England because one thing that people generally don't know about the Church of England is that some of its congregations are, to this day, as we record, notably very healthy. They are pretty much without exception what are called low church or evangelical Anglican churches. Their convictions would be somewhat similar to a conservative Anglican, not Episcopalian, Anglican denomination in the United States. Some of them are 
would actually, to some degree, resemble a Lutheran church in many ways in their kind of fundamental Orthodox Protestant, this is the Bible, you know, there has to be atonement for sin kind of stuff. The Alpha Course took off because those guys were learning how to communicate, similar situation in Australia with the Diocese of Sydney. They were learning how to communicate basic truths to people who don't know or care about any of this stuff. And I don't I don't need to see one denomination or another, you know, just absolutely crush everyone else's performance in the United States, whether it's non-denom or a denomination that calls itself a denomination. What I'm interested in is the gap between I believe in God and I belong to a church close substantially and for the I believe in God, specifically meaning the Christian God, to go much higher because... I think one of the things that is hard for church people is that they are aware of any kind. They are aware that since the 1950s and even the 1960s, all churches are emptier than they used to be. Everything is smaller than it used to be and fewer people belong than used to. And everybody's aware of that. And the unfortunate thing is it's because the 50s were the high point of all of those metrics. I mean, the I believe in God metric in the 50s was approaching 100%. (laughs) Now, some of that, yeah, was probably insincere, but you know what? I think a lot of it wasn't. I mean, what you're getting at here then is that you are concerned about the name of Jesus being um, something that is called on. Yeah, uh, yeah, precisely. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm, and I'm completely with you on this. And and the risk that we run in our circles is, you know, we're being accused perhaps of uh, syncretism now. Uh, in some way, right? That we uh, we don't recognize the distinction between us and, and the heterodox. But um, the other end of this risk, uh, the one that we're saying uh, we really are are really more on this pole at the moment, is the the loss of believing conviction across the board in, in yeah. all what had once been a fight about Christianity. Now there's just there's no Christianity. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know. And and as as much as I would have liked to have had it all be like oh the Reformation won and we converted everyone to the Augsburg Confession like 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 that that seems like a pipe dream video game to me a little bit right now um, I I, know, I I believe that the Augsburg Confession rightly spoke at the time to the controversies that were taking place um, the controversy that's taking place right now amongst the people uh, is whether or not God actually exists as a creator uh, is whether or not Jesus is risen from the dead at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if we're going to sit here and uh, it doesn't mean we have to commute with everybody, um, but we have to be able to, to talk in a way that like you said it really well a few moments ago. Like I don't have to explain historical events from 400 years ago to get you to believe in my God. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to know who Luther is to know what I believe no. about Jesus. No. Right. But I'm not no. sure at the LCMS as a, as its own self-identity, how, as it perceives them, I'm not sure we can do that. Uh, you know, I, 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 in fact, I think you try to do that, you're going to get, you're going to get assaulted from within. And so it's the same issue where once we were fighting over scraps with the Calvinists and the Baptists, uh, now we're going to fight for scraps over just our own little corner. Uh, and anybody who, who uh, is uh, per, perhaps going to, to break out, um, we're going to shoot that guy in the back because uh, he's a threat to us. Right. Um, and, and I, I, I'd like to think that's not true, but I, I've been around this block too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. You yeah. and I have both encountered that. We do still encounter that. 
there's a degree to which I have just begun to ignore it, partly because it is its own self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's sort of like a Sede Vacantist who is, you know, sitting somewhere in Kansas, believes he's the Pope. Well, unless he does something to influence, you know, the vast majority of Roman Catholics, it doesn't matter what his claims are. Right. And the person who believes that he's more Lutheran than I am because I just insufficiently despise, you know, the Southern Baptists or something or the Catholics, he he will fulfill his own prophecies. His his life apart from regular life will be its own reward. And and that's fine. And I'm I'm not the master of his destiny any more than I am of mine. The reason I've begun largely simply to ignore those things is because the existential threat to Christianity in the United States is not similar to some sort of 16th or 17th century theological battle between Christians of stable and growing, much better than replacement total fertility rate, growing populations with particular confessional and political commitments. This is more like the Turks threatening to invade Europe. And then the Christians have to figure out, okay, well, you know, we disagree about this, that, and the other thing, but we all need to fight the Turks is that, you know, the guy who is, you know, breathing his last after several successful attempts to revive him. And now, you know, he's dying in the bathroom of a, of a rehab place, you know, somewhere in North Carolina is not dying because his Southern Baptist pastor instructed him wrongly about baptismal regeneration. I'm I'm not being facetious. I'm trying to be very literal here. That kid did not do what he did with his life and his parents didn't split up when he was six because of the false doctrine of baptism at his Baptist church. So it's not that I don't believe that Baptists teach something wrong about baptism. It's that I believe that problems have a certain order of importance, especially in individual peoples and nations' lives. And sometimes you get existential threats, and sometimes you get other kinds of threats. Everyone recognized in 16th century Europe that the Turks were an existential threat, and therefore they had to fight it in a certain way, whereas they could have debates, maybe even general church councils. That was the idea behind why the small called articles were written, for example, to solve other kinds of problems. So there are different kinds of problems. The stuff that we've been talking about today is about existential problems for souls, not about permutations or difficulties within the extant Christian church. Yeah, and and recognizing that the extant Christian church, as we experience it, is not something we can take for granted Right. Its its existence right. is not obvious. This is not to say that Christianity will not survive. Uh, it's to say that it it may not look like it w- it will not look like what it looks like. And so, if I can try to be as as blatant and literal as possible, um, Lutheranism is not necessary to the next several thousand years of humanity, provided our Lord tarries. It'd be nice to have our confession remain. Yeah. But not if the only way to have our confession remain is to generate hatred for Christianity, (laughs) Uh, especially uh, those Christians who would make a witness against the actual demonic religion that's going on right now, because 
we we can see that they're wrong about this piece of Torah. We can see that they don't have a full belief about this particular revelation. And so as a result, they're unclean to us, right? And, and again, I'm, I don't want to, to say that, that the leaven isn't important. I think the leaven is incredibly important. What I am saying is that the leaven is inside the house, and the leaven is eating us alive. And the fruit, which is not of the Spirit, which is the contentions, uh, the envies, the quarrels, uh, the um, uh, hatred of father and mother. I mean, you go through the list. Uh, there is there is so much rage, backbiting, lying, deception, hypocrisy. What does Lutheranism as a visible thing have to offer right now to the guy on the street? who's just concerned about some breathing exercises because he wants to live 10 more years. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the question, right? That's the question. And I think we have something. I think we have a lot of things. I've been writing it down. Like, like what if we sold humility as opposed to hubris? What if we talked about that? Uh, that, that hubris is the problem with our country right now. Not, not Democrats, not Republicans, hubris. And in my church, we teach humility. I mean, I don't know. Sounds kind of bold. Yeah. Um, what, what about just wisdom? And the value of patience, right? I, I, I know there are people out there that are hungry for that kind of talk, right? Uh, grief, you mentioned grief earlier and loss. How do I reckon with loss? Um, I'm writing these things down because uh, I'm, I, I don't think I have the answers to this. It's not like my, my congregation is just radically capable of talking to everyone who walks in off the street. I mean, I still have to try to figure out how to, how to talk about close communion with them. I don't, I don't know. I still believe in it, Right. Uh, but I also have to c- figure out, like, where are they? Dear heavens, you just walked in today. What do you believe, right? Before I can begin to explain to you why what we believe is so true. Because um, the, the, the foundations just aren't there for that conversation. Um, God, it's, it's a, I, we're, we're at time, but it's, it's, a, it's a brutally open question for me still. But what I know is that the track that we're on is, uh, is self-destructive, um, yeah, it requires a huge, huge dose of repentance on every level, uh, and that that's an individual call out right there. Um, yeah, it is the fragility that we discussed regarding politics last week. I I think that is important going in both directions. So you could describe it as fragility, but you could also describe it as changeableness. Is that when you're thinking as a Christian about history, you have to remember that both God's mercies and his judgments, but especially for those of you that easily get saddened, both God's judgments and his mercies are on display in history in ways that are apart from a belief in providence, utterly inexplicable. So if you are Joseph, there is a point at which it is utterly reasonable and you can record a brief history of power episode about why you find your elevation to the second place in the kingdom improbable, <laughs> you know, and then you can go back like I do. Sometimes I don't listen to the old episodes, but you guys remind me of things that we said. And I'm like, one, I don't remember everything I say, but then two, I'm like, oh, that was cringe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Joseph can go back and say, it was cringe when I recorded that episode about how <laughs> I'm going to rot in jail the rest of my life for no reason. Because it turned out not to be true. So when I think about you know the future of the church in any given place, but especially in my own country, the, the reason prayer is possible is because God's mercies are possible. 
and new every morning. So that's that's how I look at it. I find the statistics, I find the surveys all fascinating, partly because they clarify. They take what is a vague sense or an intuition and make it clearer and sharper, where we compare even just our own anecdotes about people worshiping their own sense of health, their self-care, and find that that is a pretty general phenomenon. So I always find it helpful, and but I don't, I don't rely on my own prognostication because who knows? There are no accidents with Jesus being king. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish 
may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.